as a creative, as an artist, it's like, how do you deal with loss? You create and create and create. And that's how we extend the memory of our loved ones. We create. I'll never stop. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. James Mraz joined the Faculty of Art Center's Environmental Design Department in September of 2001, shortly before 9-11. In the wake of that tragedy, he wavered about how to proceed with his planned curriculum. How would it all be relevant? In the end, he resolved to lean into the uncertainty of that cataclysmic moment, realizing that the only way out of the pain, chaos, and confusion is to go through it. Above all, he discovered the value in staying present and connecting with others when things fell apart. But he had no way of knowing how much he'd come to rely on those same skills when another catastrophe struck much closer to home. In June of 2019, James's 20-year-old son Luke died. James and his wife were immediately thrust into every parent's worst nightmare. But as they were pummeled with wave after wave of agonizing grief, James eventually felt called to move toward the pain in order to understand lessons that might benefit him and others, all of which we cover in our conversation. James's journey has been an arduous one. The pain of loss remains an ever-present burden he's dubbed the backpack. But by bringing his creativity to bear on an unbearable situation, James has discovered opportunities for reinvention and even a kind of rebirth in the projects he's undertaken to support young artists and vulnerable communities in Luke's honor. Like the skilled designer he is, James has continued to ask himself the hard questions and has found renewed meaning in the simple act of showing up even when part of him wants to give up. Please enjoy my conversation with James Mraz. Hey James, welcome to Change Lab. Thank you for doing this. It's good to see you. Thank you for the invitation, Lauren. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm excited to see where this all goes. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, you used a phrase in an Instagram post, and you talked about a journey of reinvention. And it's a journey that listeners should know comes out of a, an experience of immeasurable grief at losing a child. And the notion of reinvention sparked for me a question that we're trying to address this season. And that is how our creative life, our creative enterprises, our creative work, creativity itself can somehow be a catalyst for some kind of healing or a grieving process that takes us from one point to another. And I'm really keen to learn about the ways in which your experience has worked that way. And hopefully we can explore that today and 
and it's not just about the specific work, but you know how we engage in life's project, really. So sure, that's the question that's looming, and that's what I would like to explore with you. But maybe before we do, it would be good for the I think for the listeners to learn a little bit about you, if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about your background and your your own creative interests as you moved from architecture to environmental design and what you've been working on here. Just give us a sense of who you are. Oh, there's so much there. I guess let's see where, where to start. I grew up in a construction family in down in Orange County, Santa Ana. My dad was a contractor. For work, I was actually helping my dad's architect. So I was actually learning drafting from this old architect down there. And so I started to look at architecture schools in Southern California, USC, and the Cal States, Pomona, San Luis Obispo, and SciArc. And I just thought to myself, this is definitely the place for me. So that became a whole new journey. And actually, I feel like my life changed radically. And can we fast forward to how you got involved with Art Center and the environmental design program there? Yes. So I'll never forget it. For one thing, my first term at Art Center was September 2001, you know, and, mm, and who, mm. who, who cannot remember where they were. Right. And so that was my first term. And everybody was thrown into kind of a cataclysmic tailspin. I remember showing up at school and Everybody was standing there like, what are we doing? Maybe we shouldn't have class. So, you know, it, this, this, the school closed, I think, for a week or two and just kind of took stock of, like, what, how do we respond to this, you know, situation? So that was my first turn, my first experience. And interestingly enough, that the outcomes from that very first class I taught was, was actually shown in, in the main gallery at Art Center. Just out of curiosity, did that first class you taught work with, wrestle with, leverage the 9-11 experience at all? Absolutely. I felt my whole life I've kind of lived on the surface of life. And I think that when anyone's faced with this, any kind of cataclysmic situation or uh, disaster, you become confronted with the impermanence of life. That's a real moment. And I think we all fear it. So when we were confronted with that, we asked lots of questions. Mm -hmm. Like, what are we doing here in the first place? You know, why are we here? Or what's the meaning? And depending on the level of, of you know, whatever tragedy you may face, I think you start to ask the deeper questions, you know? And so, so at that moment, on that class, I think there was such an uncertainty that it comes through in the expression. And I think is a is a is a is a good if I'm a good teacher, I can invite that to happen in this work. Right. I mean, so much of this is what I want to explore with you here and what I'm so interested in in terms of how our creative work, our expression can help us wrestle with difficulty, with uncertainty, with that kind of pain. Yeah. So James, tell us about Luke. Tell us about your son Luke. And and by the way, it might be important for listeners also to understand who who was Luke and who was Axel, if you can clarify that <laughs> as well. Oh my gosh, you know, it's I've been evolving organically because of this, you know. I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan. Follow your bliss, amazing things happen. That that basically has been the model of my life. And up until 2019. 
it was all working for me. But let me talk about Luke. Um, yeah, he's an incredible guy. <laughs> and I continue to learn from him. But Luke was an incredibly creative person. We, we kind of raised him that way to look at life as a place to just enjoy and take risks and, and use that for your own creativity, you know? And Luke was, he, you know, he made his own clothes. He studied fashion. He very much, I guess like you call a cyberpunk, you know, he, his, he was an incredible illustrator. He was working on his graphic novel and he was kind of a rebel too. You know, he was a skater, you know, he would, he dislocated his knee moshing in the pit, then continued to fix his own knee and go skateboarding. He's this kind of guy, you know, just incredible artist who lived his life with full expression. And, you know, you, you really reflect on a, a person that's 20 years old who's a creative, who hasn't experienced a part of life where you have compromise too. So, you know, a total idealist. You know, and a really open-hearted, always looking out for, you know, his his homies, as he would say. You know, he had so many fingers in the pot. He was doing graphic design for a, a French apparel company. He was doing his own graphic novel. He was into assemblage art, you know. He was making his own clothing and making products for his cyber future. His graphic novel he's working on is based on a character named Axel, who Axel's a protagonist. And if you see pictures of Axel, Axel's Luke. Right. Axel is Luke, and Axel was a cybernetic hacker. He he lives in a retro future Los Angeles Neo Tokyo environment, and he lives in a world where the inter, inter, a future where the internet wasn't invented yet. And so we work on CD ROMs and older technology. It, it's it's super fascinating. And Luke left me with probably thirty sketchbooks. Can you tell us what happened to him? Yeah. So you know with these sketchbooks, I. We learn so much about him. We learn so much about Axel. And sometimes it's, it sounds strange, but I think about is, you know, was Axel Luke or is Luke's Axel? Or is the, who's, the, who's the creator here? Luke was a, he's a very open person. He was, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of, I don't say, I want to say ironic, but I, I always look at, okay, creativity comes from a flash of insight or altered states. And altered states can be whatever that means, you know, being in a different environment or exploring life in, in different ways. Luke was a, you know, he was a casual drug user. He, he got a hold of something that was laced with fentanyl. And that was it. That's what happened to him. And since that horrible moment, James, you have embarked on a journey, this journey yourself of wrestling with your grief this horrible tragedy and try to employ a kind of spirit of creative engagement, um, what you call reinvention. And I'm so struck by that. I'm so struck by that word and knowing your story, so inspired by it. And maybe I could invite you to talk about why you use that word reinvention and what it means to you as you deal with this pain. Yeah. Reinvention and rebirth really. Is, is a bit of a, a bit of a mantra, you know, for me, like I said, you know, it's sort of like when I say I lived on the surface of life, it's always a, a question because I've had a lot of success in my life and what I want to do, 
you know? But I, when the trapdoor of life falls through and you end up in the swamplands of the soul, as, as you know, James Hollis would say, who I, I know is a, a colleague of yours and a guest, you question everything and the meaning of everything, who, who I am and what I stand for, you know? And for me being an educator too, I even ask myself, like, why do I do this? I think where I'm at now, I feel like I don't need to answer those questions. I move forward. And I think the, the rebirth and, and the reinvention, it kind of happens every day. You know, every day I choose to get up and, and face, face the world. And I think that from the reinvention, it's kind of like recalibrating. You know, so recalibrating everything I stand for, everything I've done and finding the meaning in that, the deeper meaning, mm. you know, and, and, you know, after this happens, like you're faced with so many cliches and you kind of have, I kind of have to look at those and say, well, what, like, not negate those, but what do they mean? You know, like people used to tell me when this happened, oh, well, you're a mentor, you know, you, you help so many people. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's like. I, it's you have to go deeper, and I realized, you know, o- over time that that is such a value to me too. And I think now I do what I do more authentic and more raw, more open. I just I welcome that, and I think that the that creativity just comes from that. And and just to, if I could say just to look at pain, I mean, I, I have two mantras I wear on my I literally wear on my sleeves, you know, and. Yeah, I was going to ask you about those. So good. You're perfect. Yeah. I've, I've many, many tattoos have been part of my healing process. And this is Viva La Vida, you know, and, you know, Frida Kahlo, the, the artist, you know, her last painting was a painting of some watermelons, you know. And then weeks before she died, she, she wrote on the watermelon Viva La Vida, you know, and, and, you know, Frida lives such a life of mental and physical pain you know, and, and suffering. And Viva La Vida literally means hooray for life. And even though she lived in so much pain, she, she created so much. She found beauty and magic in life. That, that's kind of a mantra for me, the Viva La Vida. You know, it's like you, you take this pain, but you, you can turn that into beauty, you know? So one of my mantras for students is you take, you know, take that pain and, you know, create, meaning and beauty out of the chaos of life. On this arm I have, it says, and yet, and yet, and this is an illustration of a dewdrop. So Kobayashi Issa was a, a Zen uh, Buddhist poet and he experienced a lot of loss. And in 1820, he wrote this poem a dewdrop world is a dewdrop world, and yet, and yet. And the dewdrop world is, is really like the notion of impermanence, you know? We understand we're not here forever, you know? So maybe we shouldn't have attachments. But the thing for me I'm very struck with is the and yet, and yet. Because we're humans and we risk. We risk love, you know, um, and I think that, you know, our, our souls like long for that tenderness. We risk that pain. And that's kind of beautiful, too. And so 
you know, we can understand and we hear this over in many philosophies that we should understand that life's impermanent, you know, but, but we're here to, to risk that, to risk those relationships, you know. There's a short, one of Issa's poems that I have always loved, and it goes something like, on a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. Yeah. And like the one you talk about, that one always had great meaning for me as well, for very similar reasons, actually. Yeah. I mean, there is that cricket on that branch heading for God knows what at the end of the, you know, when it... Yeah. I love that poem. There is singing nonetheless. Do you know it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I've studied many of those poems. It's 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 interesting. I've I've explored so many different like philosophical views on, on life, you know, because you ask yourself, look, what when something like this happens, and I'm talking about disaster and what we're all going through now. Listen, in in the past two years, we all have loss. You know? So we all ask these questions like eat, sleep you know, work, not enough of us ask the question, like, why are we here? <laughs> so eat, sleep, work, what else is there? You know, I think everybody's confronted with that question now, you know? But they're singing. I think that's, yeah. that's right? Yeah. Yes. And that, yeah. right? Yes. There is some expression. Yes, yes. We have a moment. That's right. That's right. With all, with all that might confront us. That's and right. And as you so eloquently and beautifully put, to, to love is to risk. That's right. The Absolutely. The worst kind of pain. It, it is. And I think it's really just the only way to, to grasp such a, a deep a deep grief and, and, and pain is to know that that feeling so deeply felt is really love. Expression of the love that you, we have for our loved ones, you know? Maybe that's a good way to turn to my asking you to just tell us a little bit about this journey of reinvention, how your love for Luke became an expression after this moment, and, and, and maybe to tell us some stories of what you've been able to do or what you've tried to do in this reinvention. Yes, yes. In this reinvention, I call it our Luke, you know, foundation, I guess, but it's we have two things that we do. One is, of, of course, we have our, um, our Axel Live Scholarship for Art Center. And this scholarship embodies what Luke is, what he was and what he is. And it, it, it really extends him and his creation and his attitude. We, we give a scholarship to multidisciplinary students who don't really feel locked into one discipline and they feel a bit of a rebel. You know, and so we celebrate that. And we realized there wasn't a lot of scholarships that actually did that. So, you know, it was kind of exciting to think about how do we extend Luke's spirit, his creativity to others? And so this, this scholarship celebrates the, the, we call it, we celebrates the misfit, the rebel who has many interests, you know, and is out of the box in a, in a way. And it's been interesting how it's evolved. We, we had our second scholarship this year and some beautiful things have come out of it too. We, we asked 
you know, ap- applicants to to write about their their struggles about feeling like out of the box too, you know, and it's an expression in itself that I've I've valued. It's been such a healing experience to be able to extend Luke and his spirit in this way, which all comes from this this loss and this this grief. Another thing we did we're doing it's huge and it's. It kind of came out organically, but we created Corrosive Complex Project. And people ask me, what is Corrosive Complex? So so Luke called himself Corrosive Complex too, which was like everything he did, you know. And we create with his work. And as a, as a, as a creative, as an artist, it's like, how do you deal with loss? You create and create and create. And that's how we extend the memory of our loved ones. We create. Mm. I'll never stop. Mm. So we, we actually create apparel with all of his art and all of his ideas. And it's been pretty successful. You know, it's been exciting. His friends just thank me so much that this is a way we extend who who he is and who he was. But it's it's gone beyond that too, our, our base of, of folks that love what we do, you know, and 100% of everything we make goes to, right now there's, there's four entities that we've been giving everything to. We give to the uh, DWC, Downtown Women's Center, you know, who provide for homeless women and help them on a, another path. We give to And Overdose, a local LA group that's all about drug awareness. And they provide Narcan and test strips since fentanyl is so prevalent in all recreational drugs, everything. We also provide for, we fund My Friend's Place in Hollywood. They provide for lost youth in Hollywood. And, and homeless, and they help them get um, back on their uh, feet as well. And so, you know, the last two years we had Corrosive Complex, we were able to, in a healthy way, fund these entities. And, I mean, I never dreamed of anything like this. <laughs> but, but, but this but, is but, something that's come from all of this tragedy. Yeah. But an amazing story. I mean, I just want all of us listening here to pause for a moment to think about the human capacity to be creative is a way to keep love alive in a way for you, right? I mean, it's a way to honor, to remember, to, well, I guess the the next part, the word I was going to use, I'll ask you, is it a way to heal? Yeah, and it's it's so interesting, you know, and I, I think... The past two years, I've been involved in so many things. And I just, you know, of course, I've, you know, explored grief groups. And there's specific grief groups for people who've lost children, which is, you know, it's 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 literally anybody's worst nightmare, you know, to lose a child. You know, losing a loved one is is difficult. Losing a child is its, its own. It's its, its own thing. And I've talked to so many people in the in these groups and, I, you know, I... Sometimes I step away from it, but I, I think it's interesting when you say healing because a lot of these people are really adverse to that notion. I think it's it's because they feel like there's a suggestion of being healed. And I think what that means to me, it's that that pain, that grief is actually important. It's something you realize that can't be healed or it won't leave you because the, the love's present in that. So, so healing, yes. And I, I think in a creative spirit, 
It's so important. I, I believe in a lot of work I do, the classes I've taught, the studios I've been part of through, oh my gosh, so many of the things I've been involved in through Design Matters and other entities. You know, we've, we've created work that is about healing. And I think it doing the work, there's such a healing in that too. And, and that's, a, that's a giving, I think, is, is, is a healing. But maybe there's, I mean, I think what you're saying is so important that what we mean by healing is not to get to a point where we're pain-free somehow, where everything is good, or where That's everything true. is with, with, without any link, that we have to entertain a much more complex notion of what healing is, which doesn't mean getting to the other side yeah. of something, but almost like we're able to, well, engage with something, allow for something to continue to have movement not be stuck, not uh, hold us back, but continue to emerge. I mean, so much of what I get inspired by as I listen to you is it's evident how clear the pain persists. Absolutely. But there's growth and learning and something so human about how it stays in motion, I think is the, is the image I have. And maybe that's a, a, a different way or a more nuanced way of thinking about he thinking about healing it does and i and i as i mentioned you know being around others i think people get angry too you know you get very angry sure. at, you know angry at god or just angry at the situation and I, and i think some of those folks you know who go through this that that's part of the process you know is, is the anger for it but yeah. but i think later you realize that 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 can be metamorphosized you know that that anger can metamorphosize into the healing and the healing really comes from compassion and love, really. It, it really does. And two, two people that I've, I've uh, studied is Pema Chodron and, and Thich Nhat Hanh, mm -hmm. you know, and Thich Nhat Hanh would mm -hmm. say, when you, when you have these difficult emotions, walk with it. You have to walk with it. You have to be aware of it. You have to walk with it, that pain. Become friends with it. Become friends with fear, anxiety, and, and grief. Be friends with it. And then maybe, you know, in his philosophy, maybe you can release it. And when you start to release it, that then becomes a kind of like an awareness, you know, a, a deeper awareness of, of yourself and the importance of maybe not trying to rush through this, through these difficult feelings. Is a parallel for you, James, that walking with it also means making with it, engaging with it, creating with it, building on it? Does that resonate? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's built into my DNA. And I, I guess, I don't know, maybe I can serve as an example of that, of how a creative person deals with loss. 
you know? And, and like you said before, it's a process. I'm always, I'm very like careful about saying I've achieved this or I've, I've achieved that or, and it's very, that was a difficult thing for me to learn as an educator. Like, you know, we have these goals like, okay, now I've done this, I've done that and I'm doing this. And I've gone over that because this isn't like that. So I think it's, it's cyclical, it's waves. You know, and that's a metaphor used a lot in, in grief is these waves come at you, you know, and there's no control of it. And all you can do is surf, you know, all you can do is surf and ride waves. And so for me, riding the waves is creating. But that exactly anticipates my next question to you, because, I mean, you have created, but you're also teaching. I mean, you're teaching right now in this conversation, you're teaching by example, but you're also teaching classes. You're teaching yeah. students yeah. at Art Center. Yeah. And I think it would be really wonderful to hear you reflect on, on how that teaching is part of this process as well, especially given the fact that you've been so deeply involved in something like social impact design and design matters that really is about trying to foster creative solution in the midst of suffering yeah for so many of these different projects yeah and i would love for you to reflect on that and maybe give us an example that might also expand our understanding of what your journey has been also as a teacher yeah that it's it's i reflect on that so much you know because i've thought about okay so my life's dedicated to to being a teacher you know in, in design and how has it evolved? Like there's that question like, oh, I've evolved this way. Now I'm a wounded healer or now I'm doing this, but I'm very careful about labeling what I am or, or who I am. And I'm just sort of like, almost kind of like seeing innovation through improvisation in a way, you know, I kind of see my life as more of like a, you know, almost like a, like Miles Davis or something, you know, when he started doing like sketches of Spain and really exploring different ideas after he already had a career. So, I kind of feel like I have such a grounding as a teacher. Now what do I bring to it? So I've been reflecting on some of the things I had done before, you know, June 2019 in terms of teaching that I felt had an impact and had some aspect of healing and what I've done after too. And maybe I, I view it differently now and maybe I realize Part of who I was is still who, still who I am, you know? I think I've always had an interest in kind of under the surface and inviting students to explore that, you know? And, and explore like a, a self-inquiry in the work. I think it's... It's so much more interesting, I think, too, you know, because there's a mystery to that. And you ask yourself, who am I and what do I bring to my work in that way? On another level of, of projects, it, this is, I guess maybe, I don't know if there's a different subject, but I just wanted to talk about Sanctum for a minute. So... Yeah, um, please do. No, okay. I think it's entirely relevant. Yeah. Okay, good. So a, a project I was involved in called Sanctum, which was really looking at our homeless situation, you know, in the in the city of LA. And it's astounding for so many reasons. Like 
why this is happening and how this is getting out of control, you know? I mean, we have over 30,000 people on the streets right now in the city of LA. And so this came about back in February of 2018 and Mayor Garcetti asked, he invited several design institutions, architecture schools to a meeting and he said, hey, can you think about some solutions for what we're dealing with right now? Is design institutions, the premier design institutions of California, can you do this? And he had us all in a boardroom. So he said, well, look, we have these like three or four premises of what we'd like for you to think about. What we're thinking about is like, one is how do we deal with getting people off the street right now? What can we do to help relieve this situation here? Another one was working with hygiene, you know, bringing, how do we bring hygiene to people living on the streets? Another one was transitional living, you know, how about more or semi-permanent living, you know, what, what are the premises that you can do? Homeless crisis in LA is getting worse, and today Mayor Garcetti is talking about what the city plans to do about it. This is a developing story. He just announced millions of dollars aimed at getting people off the streets. Now the money will be used to add shelter beds, shared housing, clean up Skid Row, provide services to the homeless youth, and much more. I immediately thought I would love to work with students on the immediate problem, helping people get up the streets at this very moment. And so we took that on and, and the, the, the brief was sort of simple in the sense of let's create some kind of emergency housing right now that could be for singles or couples or people with pets. And the premise was that they told us that they could provide city-owned parking lots and build structures that could be on those lots for three months to three years. And so we, we built on that and, and we, we learned so much on it. I had an amazing team and we kind of looked at it. How do we go about doing this kind of project in a, a very sensitive way, you know? So we, we got embedded with a lot of people in the community. We were able to get right in the middle of Skid Row and just walk around and be there. And it was, it was so enlightening and so frightening to be around this environment, you know? And so with, with reverence and with, you know, a gentle way, we learned, you know, how do we interact with people with this, who are going through this? One of the things that we did, I think, made a huge impact on my students and me personally was we provided lunch at the Downtown Women's Center. We cooked for 300 women and we served. And it's a simple act, but was such a moving experience. You know, I looked in the faces of my students and just the, just the compassion and empathy is so authentic when you see people on their level and you're able to serve. It was such a beautiful thing. It was such a beautiful moment. And I think the healing happens there where for my students too, you know, for me, it was like, I just realized the, the importance to that, you know, that serving others in an authentic way is where you meet it, you know? And we learned how to talk to people. And, and honestly, I had a frank conversation with my students. I said, look, if you think that homeless people got themselves in this position, you can't do this project. We have to have the filter or the, the mindset that, you know, all kinds of factors can happen to people to get them in the situation and be careful about the discussions we have with people.
Like we don't ask questions like, how did you get this play this way? Or why do you have a dog? You can't afford to have a dog. We actually opened up and said um, things like, tell us about yourself. Like, what do you want us to know? You learn so much more from that, I think, you know, because then from those answers that they give, there's so much for us to learn from that. There's so many things that are going through my mind right now, but one thing I'm thinking about is an echo of what Father Greg Boyle says about his work too. It's not about standing in judgment as to why, in his case, these gang members are the way they are, but in amazement, standing with them in amazement for their pain and beginning there, that that's what the service is about. And it's also not about the, the person giving the service. It's about the people who are in pain that we're trying to deal with. And getting that right is probably more challenging than one would think. But the other thing that I'm thinking about too, as you're speaking, is that you know, you, you talk about, the reason I was asking you about teaching is because we talk about the reinvention in terms of your own creative work and some of these projects you're doing and how you so beautifully articulated the building of and the creating that came from this moment of, of intense agony. But you also talked about a reverence and a gentle way of moving forward with it. And I just want to say, James, that speaks volumes to who you are as a teacher. And that you're setting up that possibility. You're modeling for us. You're inspiring us. You're doing the work with us and making a space possible for us to, to grow and learn and understanding what that is. And it's why my perception is that your own life as a creative and your own life as a teacher is so beautifully interwoven. And I think the two are always nourishing, mutually nourishing one to the other. Which kind of gets me to a, maybe a question I want to ask you, which has struck me throughout this conversation and other conversations that you and I have had over the past several years. And to ask you, you're so open about so much. You're there, you're willing to engage, you're willing to talk. I'm interested in why. I'm interested in how that w works for you. I'm interested in how it exists in tension with what I'm sure is the need for some deep private moments of isolation and solitude as well. I wanted to invite you to reflect on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, um, I mean, just being who I am as a teacher, I think teaching I see is just, it's sharing, you know? And I think with this pain and grief that I've, I've gone through, I think sharing so important but also as you might think it's it's something to be nurtured too so i respect that as well i don't put my face in front of people and say hey look this happened to me you know i don't advertise this but when people ask me questions i'm very authentic i, I don't shy away from sharing now but it's not my first thing on my on my mind i try to open myself up to what's needed, you know, kind of thing. In sharing and sharing certain levels when, when needed, you know. I think a question that people who have lost a child always fear is when you meet someone for the first time and they say, oh, do you have any kids? And I, I thought about that. And if someone wants to ask me that, I just, I'm going to be authentic and tell them my truths 
And that's another you know, mantra I try to tell my students too, and something I live by is like, reinvent the idea of truth, reinvent the idea of beauty in the work that you do and the life that you live. I think truths were different to me before and truths are just raw, you know, and, and they're real. I just, I, I cannot hide that. Thank you, James. Look, I learned so much from you and I have for all these years and um, grateful to you for your wisdom and your honesty today and helping us with like that fundamental human question of how you go on when you can't go on anymore. And yeah. um, you've really helped us think about that. Thanks so much for allowing me this time. I feel like, hey, who knows, you know, if, if my life can be a, a, a roadmap for how you get through some shit, then that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Change Lab. Mm-hmm.